One of these days I'll realize that those songs are only one verse and I'll be prepared for it, but I was definitely ready for that to go another round. Okay. Our preaching text for today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before God no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, we are thankful for this time and this place, for these people and for this purpose. May you guide our thoughts today, but most of all, may you guide our feet. May we be active participants in the story that you're telling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, today is Christ the King Sunday. Who knew it was Christ the King Sunday before today? Anybody? I could have known the two ordained folks in the room would raise their hand, but yes, um, this morning we had one, <clears throat> uh, one person that was, was prepared. They had been doing their daily readings that are in the bulletin, and they had known it was Christ the King Sunday. I will admit that for me, Christ the King Sunday isn't the most natural. I was raised in a fairly low church environment where the liturgical calendar wasn't the focused, so imagining Christ or Jesus as a king has always been a little bit foreign. Even the idea of Jesus as some kind of political leader of a vast kingdom, it just didn't really vibe with the way I was taught to relate to Jesus in my life. The idea of praying to Jesus, of having a God who wants to have a relationship with me, that wants to know me, didn't correlate to this kind of tyrant or dictatorial-like example that we often think of when we think of kings or kingdoms. And as a pastor, this kind of discomfort, I guess, with the idea of Jesus as a king can be a problem because Christ the King Sunday is an important liturgical holiday. It sets us up for the coming of Advent, which is going to be this next month, and it's an important opportunity during this kind of month of preparation right at the start for us to be reminded that the baby that we're waiting for on Christmas, the, the, the child, the Savior that's going to be born, is not just a child born into poverty and out of wedlock. He's not just a wisdom sage that's going to offer us teachings for generations. Christ the King Sunday is meant to remind us at the very beginning, at the very beginning of this season of waiting, that the person we are waiting for is the rightful King of the world and Lord over our lives. I don't know about you, but that feels like kind of a loaded statement. That's not the kind of thing I just go around telling people, like, can I talk to you about the Lord of my life, Jesus? I mean, that's a little bit weird. People would get uncomfortable. But it is in the liturgical calendar, and it's something that we have to wrestle with. And I think there's a couple reasons that I, and maybe not just myself, have a hard time relating to the idea of Jesus as a king. First reason 
is because for as often as Jesus was articulated to me as relatable and caring, someone that was slow to anger, full of grace, quick to forgiveness, I also at times experienced a Jesus who was absolutely none of those things. Maybe some of you grew up in religious communities where Jesus and the communities that got associated with him seemed to be a little bit angry. They seemed to keep track of all of your bad choices. They had a long list of rules and facts that we needed to memorize and an even longer list of people that we probably shouldn't spend time with. I know that in this context, Jesus felt like an exclusivist. Jesus only wanted to welcome those into the community who deserved it. Only those who could perform at a high level. Only those that were pure and pious enough to belong. To be honest, this version of Jesus always reminded me, if anyone played sports growing up, it always reminded me of that like overly intense sports parent that we all kind of grew up with on our team. You know, the, the, the parent out in the crowd that's like, taking the speed of pitches during Little League games or yelling at referees when the kid like doesn't really care and is like, everything's fine, why don't you just relax? The parent who critiques their child the whole ride home from the game because they didn't quite live up to their potential. I know on my childhood baseball team, we had one of those dads in this case. His name was Rob. I don't think he's keeping track of me, so we probably will never hear this, I hope. Um, Every day after an already two to three hour baseball practice, Rob would keep his kid on the field as I was leaving and all of us were leaving to swing the bat more, to throw more pitches. And I remember we would drive out of the parking lot and, and this dad would be sitting there videotaping his son hit the ball and throw and play because he just wanted to get that one more leg up. They were going to go home and they were going to watch the video and he was going to explain what he needed to do to fix his playing. I think for some of us, Jesus can kind of feel like that guy a little bit. Hypercritical, controlling, difficult to please. Not exactly the characteristics we want to see in someone we're calling Lord or King. A second reason we may struggle to see Jesus as a king is because Jesus is not what a king is supposed to look like. I don't know if any of you read books or watch TV shows where kings play an important factor or important role in the story, but kings aren't poor. Kings don't have sketchy family history. Kings aren't refugees. Kings don't get killed by the empire. Kings are the empire. If, a, if as theologian James Cone says, Jesus was born in a stable and cradled in a manger, humiliated and abused even in his birth, it's easy to feel surprised that this is the person we're celebrating today. Because humiliated and abused people don't become rulers, right? Needless to say, Jesus is not like other rulers. Maybe because he doesn't rule in any recognizable sense. In fact, when Christ the King Sunday was first implemented in the Catholic Church by Pope Pius the goal, even though now king might actually feel like it upholds hurtful, patriarchal, colonial practices that we don't want to be a part of, at the time, what Pope Pius was trying to do was challenge the rise of dictators across Europe. His hope was that by saying, we're going to have a holiday right before Advent in the liturgical calendar that says Christ is king, 
We are going to challenge those who believe their decisions and their violence and their military is sovereign. That it gets to decide who lives and who doesn't. It gets to decide who has food and who doesn't have food. No, Christ is king. And when Christ is king, when a homeless, murdered Jewish peasant is king, our values are different. Our passage today comes from the book of Hebrews, which represents one of the most sustained arguments in the scriptures about the nature of Christ. In it, the author is working out what it is that makes Jesus unique, not just as a historical figure or a, or a kind of teacher, intellectual teacher of the time, but what makes Jesus unique as the incarnation of God, in his divinity, per se. And it runs us into important questions that the church has been forced to face over and over and we've never really solved. In this particular passage, Jesus isn't referred to directly as a king, but he is given another distinguished title, high priest. In the Hebrew Bible, high priests were those who entered the Holy of Holies. They encountered the divine on behalf of the chosen people in order to confess sins and seek atonement for wrongdoing. In many cases, these high priests were chosen by the king and actually were kind of second in status within the monarchy. Like the king, the high priest worked from a position of power and strength. So it's no surprise that early Christian writers, just as they somewhat ironically referred to this wayward rabbi as a king, would also apply another distinguished title. High priest. But in both cases, I think Jesus offers some redefinition of what these distinguished titles represent. Instead of being defined solely by his proximity to power and his distance from the lowly, oppositional to many of the political and religious leaders that we know in our current time, Jesus relates most directly to the experiences of the underprivileged. As verse 15 says, speaking of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who in every respect has been tested. On this particular liturgical day, we could say, we do not have a king who is only known in strength, but one who has lived his own life of struggle. I think the language of empathy in this particular translation is really helpful because it reminds us that Jesus does not merely feel bad for humans in their weakness and struggle. As if it's a foreign concept he can only understand through sympathy, right? I feel bad for these kind of lowly folks. I don't get their experiences, but it makes me sad inside. Now, Jesus knows weakness and struggle inherently because they are central to his own experience. I'm sure all of us have had a moment where we tell a story or share an experience to a person in our lives, and they just seem to get it on a different level. And it's not because they're better listeners than all of our other friends. It's because they have lived through that exact same experience that we have. I know when I was doing ministry, youth ministry in Oregon before I moved to New Jersey about five years ago, I'd been in the same youth organization for about seven years, and it was a regular day where I was getting ready for the events that were going to happen in the evening. And a bunch of our kids were outside just kind of being rambunctious before we got started. And one of our young guys named Joel decided it would be funny to steal the hat of Trevor, who was one of the kids that came often and also happened to be a six foot six, 240 pound center for the varsity basketball team. 
So Joel steals his hat, and he thinks it's funny. He's running around, and, and he's trying to get away, and he decides the best way to escape Trevor's clutches is going to be to run into the building where I am and turn and lock the door. Makes sense. We've probably all done that in a game of tag at some point in our lives. But what he didn't think through is that this wasn't a door with a knob that's normal. This was one of those push doors that you just kind of swing open. And not only that, it wasn't a wood door. It was entirely glass. Probably have an idea where this is going. I'm hearing some parents breathe deeply. So Joel runs in, turns, locks the door, takes off, is laughing, thinks it's funny, and Joel throws all of his six-foot-six frame into that glass door, and it shatters all over him. (laughs) And I am sitting on the inside thinking we're going to have a normal night, and all of a sudden this kid steps in through a door covered in blood and cuts and things sticking out of his body, and my evening completely changed, to say the least. In five minutes, I was in the car holding towels over Trevor's face, calling his parents to explain why we were going to the hospital and driving, you know, 40 miles an hour to try and get him there before he bled out or something. It was terrifying, and we were there late into the evening. Finally, his parents came. He went in, and they were cutting pieces of glass out of him. I was still covered in blood from him for the ride up, and I got back to the office at the end of the night, and I was frustrated, and I was discouraged, and I ran into the guy that used to have my job before I did. And he goes, what happened to you? I said, well, I explained what happened. Kid ran through, and I was waiting for him to be exasperated, for him to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you let that happen. How did this, how did this kid get hurt? We have to figure out what our insurance situation is. But instead, he just looked at me and said, yeah, I've got a story like that or two. It was something only he could relate to. I think if maybe if you're a teacher or a coach or if you've done youth ministry, there's this kind of understanding that you have that, you know what, between five and ten years of working with junior high and high school students, no matter how safe you try and be, something is going to happen. Kate Bowler wrote a recent book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. It's a memoir written out of her experience after being suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer. It's a really beautiful book. She's an incredible writer, which just really brings it to life. But in this book, there's this point where she talks really beautifully about the people that came to visit her who had been really sick themselves and how those encounters went differently than other conversations that she had. She says that those people that understood what it was like to be in that position knew what comments were helpful and which comments were unhelpful. They were the ones who avoided pithy statements like everything happens for a reason and instead would just show up with food, ready to eat, have company, and laugh even in the bleakest of moments. Empathy means to feel with, not to feel for. It can be one of the strongest facets of Christian ministry. For Jesus to empathize with weakness not only meant that he could relate to the experiences of temptation, it also meant that he could relate to the experiences of poverty, of unsafety. He empathized with having unsteady citizenship, of being excluded from the halls of power. It meant that he knew what it felt like to function in what Marcus Borg calls a domination system that feeds on those who struggle most to protect themselves. He could empathize with the lowly because 
in many ways, more than many of us, and especially more than me, he was the lowly. I know that for some of us, referring to Jesus as Lord or King or High Priest is just too far. At the very least, it feels too formal, and that's just not language we tend to use. At the very most, it triggers religious baggage that we honestly just do not want to go back to. I could probably identify with both of those groups. But what I hope we can remember when we ask these kinds of questions, when we exist in days like today on the liturgical calendar, I hope that we can remember that choosing to commit to Jesus is not about believing in a bizarre spiritual worldview that's unrelated to what's happening around us. It's about committing to a set of moral values. Saying Jesus is Lord or King or Queen means that the most powerful people around us are not. It means that we are not. It means that the value systems that many of us have bought into are not the only choice for how we can live our lives. It means that our empathy can and should be redirected. That the folks we relate most deeply to does not have to be the same people in our own tax bracket. Because if Jesus is the Lord of our lives, though we may not know the answers to all of life's toughest questions, we will know where and amongst who we should find ourselves. Because as the reading from Mark today says, the Son did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let us pray. Jesus, if you are the Lord of our lives, let that mean something deeper than a commitment to a bunch of intellectual propositions. Let it have less to do with memorizing the right facts about God and the mystery of the universe and more to do with the kind of person we want to be in this town, in this neighborhood, in this context. Lord God, the purpose of following you is to care for those who often lack care. And for those of us with a kind of privilege and affluence that some could only dream of, it is our responsibility to give up of that. To share of our excess. To be needy for once. So that someone else doesn't have to be. May we take a critical look at our own piety, at our own religiosity, so that we can live not just a more committed life to you, but a life that in ourselves feels purposeful in a way that maybe it hasn't up until now. As we wait for the coming of Christmas and for the birth of Jesus, May we never forget that the language of king and lord and high priest is only helpful in so much as it draws us to those who don't have a place to lay their head. 
whose votes don't matter as much as other people's, and whose experiences aren't valued in the life of our own society. Because that's who you were, and that's who your heart is for. In your name we pray. Amen. We will now receive the morning offering.